welcome to this special presentation from newsaz.com and the kickoff to our 2018 War of the Worlds Week. I am Matt here in Newsaz Studios in Orlando, Florida, and in this special episode, I will be recording my commentary track to the 1938 Mercury Theater on the Air performance of The War of the Worlds. This is the performance that launched not only War of the Worlds Week at Newsaz, but my fascination and admiration of audio dramas. This performance, I have heard countless times. I have read several books about it and still watch a 1975 TV movie about this broadcast to this day. It's something I've certainly talked about for many years, and now it's time to see if it's something that I can talk about while listening to. I am not sure how this is going to go, but I wanted to try something different to kick off this year's War of the Worlds Week, and this definitely is not something I've done before, an audio commentary on an audio performance. So let's see how this goes. No time like the present to get started. For this recording, I'm going to play the radio drama, The Mercury Theater on the Air, War of the Worlds, underneath my commentary. It's out there on several hundreds, thousands of websites. It's easily obtainable, but it just seemed like this was an easy way to present this rather than having you as a listener try to sync up two audio tracks. So no need to dig out a copy of the War of the Worlds broadcast. No need to download it. Everything you should need to listen to this episode is this episode, actually. So I'm not quite sure why I started to head down the road of a list of items. You don't need anything else. Just keep listening. In fact, I already said it before. Let's get started. So let's get started right now. And that is Dan Seymour opening the show. And I always listen to this bit. I listen to this from the beginning. If I don't hear Dan Seymour open this, it's not a proper listen to me. Oh, Benny Herman, CBS Orchestra. Um, the only time he plays classical music until the end. I didn't know this was Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in B-flat until I started War of the Worlds Week, because I think it was for the preview episode. I looked up uh, what that was so I could play it in the background and listen to this for... Y- Funny part was, I've used a bit of this music in something in Star Wars in character, a different part of the song, or the perform... Or what's a, I can't think of the word when it's classical music, a part of the music, not knowing that the two were related until quite a few years later. Greater than man, and yet as mortal as his own. Most of this opening is word for word or very close to the book if you've never read the book. In fact, it's also, you may recognize it from George Powell's, I think it's 1953 movie, War of the Worlds. In fact, he might even know it better from Morgan Freeman's opening of the 2005 War of the Worlds. My point is, uh, this a lot of this is taken from the book. Some words are changed towards the end when we start talking about the years. And uh, the well, what we talk about, he's going to talk about radio here very shortly. That was changed. But right at once we get past this, there's a lot of story elements that are the same. But as far as uh, dialogue, wording, specific uh, turns of phrase used in the book or, or things that you would might recognize or pull out from the book from reading it are largely changed by Ed Koch. Orson Welles, John Goodman, and Paul Stewart to an extent, too, as well in this rewrite. This adaptation, which is what it is. It's an adaptation, so it's not a direct performance from the book. But this, starting off, we are the closest to the book that we're going to be for quite a while until we get towards the second act. Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. 
sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radio. And that's that's one of the biggest changes right there, and now we go into the true adaptation. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. That's Paul Stewart reporting the weather. And that small atmospheric disturbance, we're going to find out not so small. That's one of those those things that I heard the first time and went, okay, a weather report, and on second listening, I was like, wow, they actually foreshadowed from from go. This story actually starts much faster than I originally thought when I listened to this. This is uh, Benny Herman again. And it's going to be Benny Herman and the CBS Orchestra, all the music that we hear. And legend has it, he absolutely despised playing this dance music because he is a classically trained uh, conductor. And it was an orchestral band reduced to playing dance music for this. And I don't know the performance. Once you know that, I don't know if the performance is it stands out now like a sore thumb and i don't know if it's him playing bad to hide their throne orchestra him playing bad in protest or him playing bad because that's not the type of music that he conducts but once you learn that fact you can't unlearn it and you hear it in that dance music reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet mars the spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. And right there, that whole sequence is another element taken from the book. A lot of the wording is similar there, but the idea is the, the bigger thing. There's the fact that there's multiple explosions, that it's hydrogen in the surface from Mars. ...in the meridian room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. When I first heard this, when I heard the music, the news... The uh, even more so when we leave the studio, I had no idea that this was all done in one studio. And then when I found that out, I almost didn't believe it. But it's true, and I think that really uh, enhanced my love for this this format of entertainment, the audio drama, especially in the 1930s. Now a tune that never loses favor: the ever popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. And this is the rendition of Stardust that actor Paul Stewart famously calls one of the greatest moments in comedy. I actually think the song we heard before this, which I don't know, not the one they announced, which was La Concesita, I think. The one before that, I think, is actually funnier to listen to once you realize uh, how Benny Herman did not want to play it. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson. Detail I'm just realizing now, listening to this, um, if people were falling for this story from the get-go... Did it never occur to them? Why did they use a, uh, a... music show of dance music from a, I think it was from the Meridian Room at a hotel. Why did they use that as a conduit to reach out to all the astronomers in the country? That seems like an odd place to do that. You think you'd wait for like a news broadcast. But that's a detail I just thought of now. Never thought of that before, this commentary. We are 
ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. Frank Redick is playing Princeton, Carl Phillips, and he is probably got the standout performance here as we go in his first act. This is the one part I hate. I, 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 I actually, I went from not liking it to I wish they hadn't done it. That is that sound of that clock in the background. I don't like that. The idea is supposed to be the clockwork of the telescope in the observatory, but it's like it's almost too taking that idea too literal. I don't like that sound. I almost wish they hadn't done anything and just kind of maybe, I don't know, talked in the most open part of the room and have it kind of echoey because uh, an observatory, and still to this day, are like giant domes. That Well, I don't like that clock. That is the one thing I do not like about this. Otherwise, I love every minute of this. So I try to drown that out. I've heard it enough to drown it out, but now that I'm listening with a sharp ear for this commentary, oh, it just kind of just stabbed me right in the eardrum. exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? That's Orson Welles playing Professor Pearson, which I think I kind of knew listening that that had to be him, but I'm not sure I completely uh, knew when I first listened. It didn't matter. I was just happy to hear this, but... Uh, what I was starting to say, what I meant to say was he's playing Professor Pearson, and Ogilvy was the name of the astronomer in the book. This is this Pearson character is kind of a mashup of that Ogilvy character and a character that doesn't have a name. He's simply the narrator. That is who drives a story and who uh, keeps the... Tell, actually, it's his story that is the War of the Worlds. And yet... How do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? The conversation about uh, no life on Mars is actually in 1930. By 1938, it was it was I don't know if the word proven is the right word because we're not quite in a space age yet, but it was well established or well or common thought that there was no life on Mars, which is another strike against the idea that there was mass panic. Let me remind you that we we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly. Sure. Can't be private or anything. I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Rivers Mill is actually, I looked it up, six miles from the heart of Princeton. So, well, it's within 20 miles, so that fact checks out, I guess. ...to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. So now there's there's another clue that this is not happening. He said, when daylight permits. And, of course, we hear in the story that they check it out. But when people are listening, it is now pitch black. So all the clues are here that this is a story. No matter when you... I wouldn't say no matter, but if you entered early or uh, entered the story a little late from the beginning. So the clues are there. This is a story. So, again, this is... I'm not going to discuss the mass panic. I've done it before, but just another strike against it. Toronto, Canada. 
Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and That's another, I think, another element taken from the book, the multiple explosions. In the book, there is ten, but in this this one, there's three. Again, alluding to that this isn't just happening in New Jersey. This could be happening all over the country, possibly all over the world. So another element, like I said, they stuck to the story really well. They just changed, certainly changed the format how it was told in a lot of the passages. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. I was waiting eagerly for Bobby Millette to play so I could point out that Bobby Millette and his orchestra sounds a hell of a lot like Ramon Raquella and his orchestra. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. I think that one might be one of the best delivered lines because it's anxious, it's concerned, and it sets the stage for this cutaway. Again, I'm going to point out this is Frank Reddick because this is this is where he really starts to roll and probably comes out the standout performance in this this first half of this perform of uh, this uh, broadcast. Between the opening sirens, the crowds, just the background noise, again, just unbelievable this all took place in the same room. I, I, it's, it still amazes me. I've known it now for many years. It just it blows me away that that was how they pulled this off. Covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never... 30 yards, that is, like what is that, that's 90 feet, almost 100 feet? That's big. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. That's probably smaller than what we saw on the screen on the George Powell version, actually. I don't think that thing measured out to 100 feet. Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot... Uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. So the Wil- Wilmoth is not an accidental name. Ed Koch, the writer of this, he noted that there was a Williams farm in the area of Grover's Mill in that part of New Jersey. And he he used that as an inspiration for the name, but of course changed it to Wilmoth. And in fact, there's no one in this... Uh, no real names intentionally used in this, but this was a uh, that was people in New Jersey that knew the Williams farm heard Williams. And this, if you were wrapped up in this story, you, there are times you could hear what you want to hear, but not that's what they said. And this is as a detail taken from his book, The Panic Broadcast. Which is, if you're interested in his mindset in writing this, that's a, that's a really good book about how everything he went through to get to the story we're hearing right now. Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Wilmot. This eyewitness, uh, this eyewitness interview also made it to the WKBW versions as well, and it is a scene that I totally forgot in the first draft of the news as War of the Worlds 
I've since put it in, but I've taken it. It's been in and out, in and out. It, sometimes it works with the version of the story we've drafted. By we, I mean me. Sometimes it doesn't. We'll see. We'll see if it makes it in the end. Spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring stories now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. Uh, the policeman wins. That that background now, element of the the argument and the the voices it's just enough to pull this off, and and be believable, I think, and or at least a, 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 for the story. That I I really love that. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now we're not more than twenty-five feet away. Can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? There was, I talked over it, but I'll point it out real quick. This is the biggest example of the time constraints in doing this production. The first word Carl Phillips used to describe this was a humming sound. And then clearly it's not a humming sound because the humming couldn't be done. In fact, this, uh, this um, what do you call it, the sound is a... Mason jar being opened and a microphone. So he changed the word on the fly. It was used again. He changed it from humming to scraping to match what we were hearing. Just one of those little details that slipped through in all of this in that super tight constraint that they had to put this together and record. In fact, made changes as it aired, as he just heard. Take off! The top's loose! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying this is where this is where Frank Riddick someone really shines. Calling someone or something I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous discs. The eyes it might be a face, might be almost but heavens something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large, it's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The scene was actually recreated in the TV movie The Night that Panicked America really, really well. Really cool thing uh, to see this reenacted in a way that was actually uh, broadcast, performed. Possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words and well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. I should mention at this point when I first heard this, this broadcast in this scene, I was a full-grown man, and I listened to it in the middle of the night in the dark, and it scared the living crap out of me. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This, the anticipation of what happened and what is going to happen next. I'm, I, now that I'm putting my mind set into when I first heard this, it's, it's actually coming back to me. Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see this. More state police have arrived. Again, just just enough background noise to really just n- to take you, your mind out of the fact that this is done in a studio. I know this is like the 10th time I've mentioned that, but it's just... 
still it still astounds me. I, I couldn't uh, with all the computers and devices we have to do any almost any effect or any noise at your fingertips. I would never attempt to do this in one room in one hour straight through without stopping. I, I couldn't do it, and I wouldn't because that would be insane. It would drive me insane. And they did this every week. Wait a minute, something's happening. This sound is interesting. I've never found out what this sound is. It reminds me of something from the original Star Trek, but the Star, but the original Star Trek series didn't come till decades later. And I don't know if they got it from wherever this source was. I've never been able to find out what this, what that noise of the ray gun is. This is a five. Set full seconds of silence that feels like Ladies an eternity the first time I heard it. Beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. I'd imagine if However, you did tune into this moments before this, which is, meantime, it has been established that it could have people could have been listening right at the beginning of that attack due to where they would have tuned out from another show. If this is the first you tuned into that, and that's the first thing you heard in 1938 at night, that had to be terrifying. I don't even if you knew War of the Worlds was playing on another station. If that's what you turned into, that was probably terrifying. Now, this is a good performance. I don't know who played piano, and I didn't think to look it up until this, so maybe Ladies a follow-up in another War of the Worlds week. came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith. This is one scene, I'll tell you, never made it to any news as version yet. The whole bringing in the military and declaring martial law, it, it, is, it does not work the, with the flow of the story that we're using. It works perfectly for this, especially with the, the scare of World War II looming when this was done. But this one, as martial law was even mentioned in the WKBW remakes. I'm just not even going to try to fit it in because that's how it's going to come across if I try. It's going to feel like that was shoehorned in and that is not what I want to do with our story. And uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. And here I find myself <laughs> tuning into the story again. Sorry about that. I know it's supposed to be me discussing what I like and love about this, and there you go. There's an example. I got swept right in there and didn't, didn't even think to say anything. So let's try to be a little more uh, cognizant of that now as we go on where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. I once read on something, probably a, a forum board of some sort about War of the Worlds, that someone was either writing or had read... Or, in, or maybe just had the idea of a story, and a fan fiction story, not an official story, of Professor Pearson being in 
cahoots with the Martians, and that's why he was the only survivor. There was no follow-up to this, whatever this person said. He didn't post a link. He didn't post a story again. I don't really know if he was just saying it was an idea or something he read or something he saw. But I did like that idea. I, I wouldn't write it, but I'd read it if someone else wrote, wrote that. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition. Parabolic mirror from the book to this to a couple other versions of War of the Worlds. I never quite understood why that specifically. I don't know if a parabolic mirror was something they had just figured out to do in the late 1800s that carried over into the story, but I don't get why that has always seemed to have made it in many versions of the story. I like how George Powell just kind of makes it a heat ray, and I think WKBW is the same thing. But it's funny when I hear Parabolic Mirror, I just I don't know why. ...to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request... Now, this is going to be a CBS representative, but the censors had made them take out any direct reference to pretty much anything that really existed, and that's why that was such a general title and no company. So they didn't even bother trying to make up a company. And that was probably intentional. The more I researched about Orson Welles and John Hausman, they probably were not specific in order to allude to this guy being from CBS to help sell the realism. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's This Mountain. is, uh, I wouldn't say, oh, I already explained what I, what I dislike most is that clock noise. This is one of my least favorite sequences. Uh, this wasn't. This part isn't so bad, but it's. There's a second military sequence coming up in about ten minutes that really um, I could do without. Uh, but again, I mean, it's not a complaint. I wouldn't uh, take in consideration everything they went through to put this together, uh, and really only doing a couple of rehearsals. And probably played out a lot different, and they probably weren't expecting people to be listening to this consistently. Uh, every year and certainly weren't expecting someone like myself to listen to it virtually every month for years and years and years so i'm sure it didn't stand out to me these whole military sequences the way they do now but the story part of it i have to admit it's a huge element to the story and we'll get to that when the second sequence comes up here in, uh, in roughly 10 minutes i think well uh we ought to see some action soon one of the companies is deploying on the left flank a quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmot Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. I do like the end of this, because I do like the appearance of the tripod, so it's not all bad. I always seem to stop talking when there's a moment of silence, and then talk over when someone's talking. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight 
are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. That's Paul Stewart returning again to give the news that these are Martians. At Grove of Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. On one hand, I, I wouldn't say I'm disappointed. I would have liked to seen what they would try to do for a that actual sequence we just heard to hear the tripod. But on the other hand, I completely understand why they didn't even attempt that. It's almost like we're not going to pull this off. So it might be better just not to do anything. Just talk about it from a distance where you wouldn't hear it on our microphones. service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. I got really excited at that part because they mentioned Philadelphia and Allentown. Well, they said Allenton, but I know he meant Allentown. And that is the area I grew up directly between those two. So didn't know that was coming when I first heard this. So felt a little bit of a personal connection at that point. We're about to get to an infamous performance here by Kenny Delmar. It's uh, just seconds away. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not... Now, if that sounds somewhat familiar, that is Kenny Delmore's infamous Secretary of the Interior performance, but it's also his FDR impression. That was the President of the United States at the time. Originally, it was written as FDR, but again, the network censors said no, and no characters of anyone that actually exist. They followed those rules. But the censors never said that it couldn't sound like someone... So they kind of stuck their necks out on this, and that was, this is one of the problems when ultimately everyone, I don't want to say got away, no one got in serious trouble about this, but this was one of the things that the newspapers focused on in their attack against radio, is that the radio, uh, that Orson Welles and Rick Gethier on the air made people think the president was talking about a Martian invasion. So that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read. So for a point of uh, reference, Howard L. Ikes was actually the Secretary of Interior in 1938. I looked that up for the special. Here's a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English... French and German scientific bodies offering assistance. And now we're getting into the worldwide attack, which was alluded to. Like, I'm not, I wouldn't say they said the word worldwide attack, but the the multiple multiple uh, explosions from Mars. So Mars. <laughs> I don't know why I said. I have Simpsons on my mind, apparently. So yes, the, this is a world worldwide attack at this point. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. That's an element of the story that has come out in, I think, just about every version. Maybe even the 2015. I think there was, if there was the most wanton destruction from the Martians in War of the Worlds. It was the, two, I'm sorry, 2005, the, the uh, Steven Spielberg version. But always been, that's a story element that H.G. Wells had really, uh, 
I think thought about when he wrote this. I don't know for sure. And it's it's a uh, it's a good story element. It's they are there to keep the humans from running, and then ultimately for something else. We don't really get to that too much in this story. We do a little in book two or the second act, I guess should, I could say. But uh, that's one that's carried through. I think on every version that I really enjoy. Some versions completely ignore that. Some versions also completely ignore the the good story elements. So that's why I don't enjoy them. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming up to that. Oh, here it is. Yeah, this is that military. This is, this is, their first military setup isn't too bad because they're setting up the military and the characters. But this second one, this is, this goes, this goes too long. Thirty-two meters. It's just, it's a lot of numbers. And I understand what they're doing. I mean, I've seen stripes, so I know what they're doing with the mortars. But it's, it's like, oh, they could, this could have been, could have been scaled down somehow, I would think. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. It's a... This is probably the slow point in an otherwise pretty quickly paced story at this point. This this is where it kind of just it doesn't grind to a halt, but it's see they're still just shouting out numbers. This is the third shot of numbers, and one one less would have made this much faster. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black Moving this way. But one important element in this sequence, though, that I can't deny is the black smoke. That's a huge story element in every version or every good version, and certainly a big one in this one and uh, this adaptation as well. So an important scene. Not my favorite, again, but but an important scene. In fact, it's about to finally, I think, wrap up here very shortly. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the rain. More numbers. But even though not my favorite story or uh, my favorite part of this story, it's still well performed. This is awesome. <laughs> I will say, we go from probably a low point to a high point. I love the fact that they did this. Reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is both reporting to Commander Fairfax. I'm going to tell you that one of the versions of News as World of the Worlds had this in it, and it was. It was so fun to write, but man, did I look at that going, I don't know how we're going to do this and and make it. You can do it. You can do anything in audio at home these days. Now, can we do it that people think it's actually happening or at least with their suspension of disbelief is happening? That was the tough thing. That was the tough goal. It's not in the version I have now, but man, do I love the idea that we took from this and adapted to our version. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. 
Plane circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards and we'll be over the first. So it's cool enough that they decided to take the story to the airplanes. It's about to get 800 yards. pretty amazing right here. 600. 400. 200. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. There we go. This is the. This is where it's pretty amazing, in my opinion. Feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. So we went from what, in my opinion, is the slowest point of the story to probably the most exciting point of the story. Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. I don't know Langham where this, the Field. ham radio, or the, even the radio operators, whether ham radio operators or not, came in. Jersey Flats, engines incapacitated by heat ray, all crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke. So I'm not sure why, and it wasn't in his book. I don't know why. I'm not sure why Howard Koch had put this in here because this isn't. This is the last time we're going to hear him. We're actually going to hear him quite a quite a bit here towards the end of this first act. Marshes. Reach at South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use Route 7, 23. This, when I first listened to it again, not knowing at all what they did in this story and listening to this in the dark, in the middle of night, these random voices over radios reaching out to each other was, was really creepy. Really creepy at the time. We've put versions in and out of our script on this one as well, but there's always a reference, and I imagine there will be until the final script. This is Ray Collins. It's the fourth radio announcer we've heard in this broadcast, and the last surviving broadcaster in New York, presumably at this point. To evacuate the city as Martians approach, estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. And we're actually coming towards the end of the adaptation of Book One of War of the Worlds, and I will say uh, it ends pretty strong. I've always loved this ending. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast we'll stay here to the end good writing good performance People great sound design there's the not much people. to say about this other than just to listen i, I really I just really love this ending all, all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from docks 
streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the... The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting... Waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. Rivers played a crossing the river. It plays a huge story element in the WKPW one as well, and it's particularly in that one because of where it lands. It really worked for the story. I'm not sure if I'm able to do that in uh, Florida. Lake will be easy. We got a ton of lakes. No rivers though. Not where I live, at least. If I'm going to have it take place in my backyard, in a sense. Now the first machine reaches the shore. I just remembered it. It's coming back to me how riveted I was listening to this ending and how on the border of terrified. I think I've tried to put my mind mindset into 1938 or at least very long ago and not knowing this wasn't happening. And that idea in the dark with only the radio and nothing else to tell me what's going on at the time. Now, of course, is much different. But at the time, this is it's a terrifying idea. And that's one of the reasons I love this. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. The idea of this ending in a city and getting the perspective of uh, what's happening in New York, I... If I ever finish our War of the Worlds and I decide to continue doing the story, I think it's uh, the idea I'd love to do is pursue this one attack, this one moment at a time, and get it from different perspectives of a city. Do a different storytelling element each time, but do it from a different city. And it's all from this last scene that the idea has grown from. And there I go, not talking during silence again. This is here. <laughs> I just had chills on the back of my neck remembering how I heard this the first time. Those boat whistles are just haunting, haunting in this story. I can't even imagine what listening to this like in 1938 was like. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ New York. Is there anyone on the air? It's Frank Reddick again, actually. Same actor uh, played uh, Carl Phillips. And now he's 2X2L, the last radio operator presumably anyone? alive. At least that is patched to this broadcast. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. That is the only identification in this whole broadcast from the, from the beginning where the announcer announced what this was. Otherwise, we were never told that this was a performance. Specifically, again, there's clues that it's a, a fictional story, but we were never told it was a broadcast until 40 minutes after this broadcast started. And now we're into the second book from... War of the H.G. Uh, Wells, War of the Worlds, their adaptation of this, and this is the narrator's post-attack uh, survival. I will I be honest, I usually turn it off at this point because the attack is what I love about it, but I have heard this enough that. to certainly listen to and talk about it again. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill. A 
small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. I will say that All the that Professor Pearson's the diary dictations in this is more like the narrator than Ogilvy, the Ogilvy life astronomer no character uh, that he kind of was adapted for. So we've kind of shifted from Ogilvy into narrator for Orson Welles' character of, of Professor Pearson in, in this portion of the story. And we have a wild shift in presentation. Everything else was news reports. Now it's... Professor Pearson dictating a diary, but what is he dictating into? We, we've, it's it's one of those things when I first listened to it didn't really even phase me, but on subsequent view uh, listen listens, I realized wow, we this is a complete storytelling shift change in the middle of a performance. And again, considering what we're going to be talking about or listening to, I should say now in the second half, I see why they did it. And I'm not quite sure <laughs> how many people noticed that when they were listening that night, because if they were scared and if they were frightened, they stopped listening or when they heard that this was a broadcast, they turned it off and went to something a little more uh, lighthearted at that point. Human hands left to wind the clocks. Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. There's one more character that's about to make an appearance before it's all said and done, and when we get to that, I'm going to talk about something that I shamefully did not notice for literally decades about this performance. And I'm curious if you, now that I planted that seed, or if you've already know, known, if you already know what I'm going to talk about, if you uh, can guess what that's going to be. It's still got a few minutes till we get to that. Steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. So now we're definitely out of uh, the broadcast or the original idea of the storytelling because now he's talking about, well, not only has he mentioned it's days later, but now he's talking morning. And anyone listening, all they need to do is look out their window and clearly tell it's not morning and that this is a play. Push on north. Some reason I feel safer. Then the fact that there's no Martians tearing the roof off their house, that, that's kind of a clue, too. Careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. Again, the talk of the machines. Would have loved to right. hear their ideas on the sound effects for that, but again, if it was something that was completely unbelievable, like if it's even worse than that clock, then I, I'm glad they didn't do it. Finally, I noticed a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. I've been curious if that dead cow bit was a nod to a passage in the book where the narrator, he finds a skeleton of a cow that the skin and flesh has been completely stripped by the Martians. And the idea was um, 
or it was speculated not to feed, but to kind of get an understanding of what the, the life was like on this planet. So I, I don't know. It may just be the fact that cows are in New Jersey, too. A giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an and that last character is about to come up here. Rose up and became a man. Man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from. from many places. That is Carl Frank. And the character's name is The Stranger. We've actually heard Carl Frank's voice earlier in this. He was a second radio announcer, heard in the beginning of the show. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about. The Stranger. This is the last character we're going to meet in this show. And have you noticed anything about this cast? Again, it's something I was shamefully unaware of and did not notice for a long time. And if you said that this cast is all men, you're right. Once you know that, it's obvious i did not notice that for years that this is an all-male performance beginning to end even background voices all male uh i don't know how i missed that but i did then now i know and now it seems pretty obvious have you seen any martians they're going over to new york night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. fly. I didn't notice. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's fly. the first time I noticed. <laughs> he said they were carrying something from they're the airport. Over with humanity. That's crazy. And then with the flying thing, I, I know they talked about them learning to fly, but I didn't realize they were carrying something from the airport. It's almost like it got delivered or they were stealing a plane. This is honestly the first time I ever noticed the airport in this listening. That's crazy. Still, all these years later, still catching things about this. That one I kind of wish I didn't catch because now I just picture aliens trying to follow an airplane. Yeah, what's left of it? I was in the militia, National Guard. That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I felt it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff. This idea of Martians capturing humans, it's been done a lot since this broadcast and other adaptations, but it really came to light this year for me when I did the Matt's Crummy Comics edition of uh, the Martians, or uh, Bash versus the Martians and Evil Dead comic coming uh, later this, this week. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. You 
you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men, as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? Why did uh, sentences end with C in the 30s? That's not, this isn't the only time this happened. I've seen movies where they say, blah, 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 see? I gotta, that's, if I ever do, I have questions again. That's going on a list, because I don't know what that's supposed to indicate. Or, uh, is that even the word I'm looking for? I don't know why. Why did they end sentences with C? Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning, afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night, afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. Yeah, Actually, doesn't sound bad. Chasing around the fields on empty stomachs. They'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. This is, if you've seen the 2005 or the world's character, the adaptation of that character was who Tim Robbins played. I don't know what the character's name is. It may have been The Stranger as well. I don't know if he had a name. Actually, I... Ooh. I think it's Ogilvy. I think that's his, his character's name. I'm going to see if I can look it up quick here. Yes, they will. There's men who do it gladly. One of them ever comes after me by... Meantime, you and I and others like us. Let's see, I'm looking it up now after wondering. I have not dropped it. It's just been taking me longer to get to where I need the answer. Ogilvy! His name was Ogilvy. That's interesting. But I, I always assumed... I had heard this before I'd seen the 2005 movie, and I instantly equated uh, Tim Robbins with this character, which I think is what it's supposed to be, or who he's supposed to be. It's just strange that the Ogle, that's where the Ogilvy character made it into that adapta- that particular adaptation. Out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, I think you can see uh, <laughs> how this is not my... Uh, this is where I... The, the part I've listened to least, because I'm looking up IMDb credits in this to... Uh, <laughs> to fill the content. This is it's a fine story. It's but once once you get past that the pace and the excitement of the attack, this is this doesn't hold up to repeat listenings. I listened to this just fine all the way through the first time and the first few times and was riveted. But it's been many, many, many listens later. Men who've learned the way how. Maybe in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. <laughs> I have a feeling Orson Welles ended today. Uh, many a conversation is real life like that. Just walking away. <laughs> Someone pitching their crazy, crazy ideas and saying goodbye, stranger. The fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up. So this is just this is uh, that's another thing about this second half. As as you are, might have picked up on or or I've heard yourself. It's we we went from 
from live real time action to narration, yeah, almost almost hearing the voice inside his head. I don't mean that in a crazy sense. I mean his, his internal thoughts. Then all of a sudden we have an interaction with another character. Now we're back to the dictation, or again possibly even the uh, internal monologue. That's the word I'm looking for. Very different presentation in the same broadcast, which is interesting. But again, doesn't necessarily hold up to as many lessons as I've done over the years. But the first half, though, and I could listen to that every day of my life, I think, and still enjoy it. The Capitol Theater, silent, dark, past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. That word was flock, believe it or not. That was what the word is that he said. Doesn't always sound like it, but it was flock. Gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street and... From there, I could see standing in a silent row along the mall. I've been curious the past couple of years listening to this if the if this it's it's monologue it's basically a monologue that Orson Welles is doing, and I wonder if that was on purpose to give him the last four minutes or so of this to himself, in order since he was the director and in charge of making sure this all ran on time. If it was given to him so that he could. Self pace himself whether he needs to go faster or go slower to end this on time. It's got to be much easier to direct yourself in this live performance atmosphere than it is to be kind of spinning your fingers at someone saying go faster or pushing your hands out like it goes slower. So I've always been curious, not always, just the past couple of years, as it occurred to me, I've been curious the past couple of years if this, this last huge chunk of, of uh, the script was made. For this one single character, for Orson Welles, or even just the idea of one character alone, to make sure this ends on time. It's one of those things you don't think about nowadays, because especially with the work we do, because we pre-record everything and edit it to whether we want content in it, out of it, a certain length, whatever we want to do, we have control over that. Live, you were done at your hour, whether you were done or not. And in this case, I'm wondering, again, if this was a, an element to a production element. That's what I'm looking for. From this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. Is the future ordained, perhaps? So this whole idea of germs killing the the Martians, it's, it's a story element. Everyone knows it knows this story. I once read an article, and it was, a, it was actually it was a, a, a book on writing, and this author, author said this is the worst story element ever written. I wildly disagree, and that guy needs to chill out. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange so we're well into the future now. As you can tell, there's a Martian machine basically in a right. museum. So this Green book two adaptation is winding uh, down. It's way shorter than book one. And I think most people tend to listen to only book one. And in fact, the script that I first 
was exposed to in middle school, or I'm sorry, in grammar school, grade school, was only up to book one. I never knew book two existed until I heard this. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further There's many a story citing that he was, was forced to, to say this at the end of it. I'm not sure I buy that because it sounds very fitting to what they're doing, but the fact that he cites this being Mischief Night, maybe there's something to it. I don't know, and I think that's a fact that's going to be lost to time at this point. I don't think we'll ever know the exact truth. I will say... Him having to do this is a much more fun story to tell. And that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. And Benny Herman gets to do what he does best, like classical music, as we close out the episode. Still one of my favorite, one of my favorites of all time. I listen to this, not just as Halloween, but almost any given point in time, I will pick this up. It's on every iDevice I have. I'll pick it up and just listen. I just really enjoy listening to this, especially especially the first 40 minutes, the, the book one adaptation. We're going to get one last sign off here, and then we're going to wrap up this kickoff to our War of the Worlds week. Okay, that was my commentary for the 1938 broadcast of the Mercury Theater on the air performance of the War of the Worlds. A little different special than we've done before, a different start to our War of the Worlds week. I think I enjoy doing it, I'll admit, and it probably came across, especially in the start of that. I was pretty self-conscious through that whole thing, but I got through it. Hopefully you found some of that entertaining, or at least to some extent, but I, I do. I think I, I think I enjoyed that. Uh, it was different. I want to try something different, and there we go. This is just the start of our War of the Worlds week. We have a lot more to come. In fact, we have more than ever. It's an extended week with 10 continuous days of War of the Worlds material coming to neozaz.com. Yesterday, we released a preview episode of what's in store for this year's War of the Worlds week. So if you missed that, head over to neozaz.com to find out what we planned, or just stick with the feed that you found this episode on, because the rest of the War of the Worlds week will show up here as well. If you're new to our War of the Worlds Week event, we started this in 2016, and all the past year's content can be found at neozaz.com, along with all the other things that we do. Along with the website, we also have feeds for all our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, just about every other podcast provider out there. War of the Worlds Week and everything we do at neozaz.com would not be possible without the generosity of our Patreon supporters, and in turn, we release special Patreon-only exclusive specials on our Patreon page as a thanks to those supporters. If you want to learn more about that, check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash We have a handful of social media sites you can follow as well. We are Neozaz on Twitter and Instagram and Neozaz Podcast on Facebook. That will do it for this episode. Thank you for joining me in this special and the start of our War of the Worlds week for 2018. We have a lot of great stuff to come this year, so stay tuned. 
To finish up, I will say one more time, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.